You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> If you're thinking this sounds like your typical restaurant scene, well, you're right. It is. But what are we doing here? This week, we take a closer look at the restaurant industry. But we're we're not really looking at the restaurant industry. What we're looking at is something much, much bigger. Now, here's the thing. If you understand what's happening in the restaurant industry, you can see approaching recessions up to two years in advance. And if you know what to pay attention to, what you'll find is that restaurant sales data have accurately predicted the last two U.S. recessions going all the way back to the year 2000. And to break it all down for us, we speak with a rare breed of analyst who is able to not only forecast industry trends, but also to apply that same knowledge to make a much bigger call on the U.S. economy. Featuring Paul Westra, Senior Research Analyst at Stiefel. You know, how does a restaurant analyst in his own little pod, you know, go out and make a big dramatic call about a potentiality for a U.S. economic recession? But we full-heartedly believe it uh, to be true. And in short, what we've seen in 2016 is very reminiscent to what happened in 2007 and 2000. Um, In fact, if you look at the underlying sales data in the restaurant space and uh, looked at that as a potential leading indicator of a U.S. recession, I'd say the data we have in 2016 is actually more scary than it was in 2000 2007. So based on current data, and if the historical relationship holds true, we're in store for something really big. This week on Adventures in Finance, the restaurant recession, and what it could mean for the U.S. economy. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week. Grant, this is a first for the long short segment. I am long Arizona and I am long on margin. So this is high conviction. I am long Arizona. Well, my short, uh, and I apologize out there to anybody listening who is uh, Swedish, but my short is Sweden, where uh, they are at the forefront of this experiment in uh, removing cash from society. And finally, in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made in the past, and then we ask them to share an investing lesson they derived from that experience. Yeah, this week, um, a real check already, backed by popular demand, we have uh, the fantastic Chris Cole, uh, the managing partner at Artemis Capital Management, um, who uh, featured in our volatility document, uh, documentary you know, a couple of weeks ago, and we had so much uh, mail about that, but about Chris and Steve Diggle. Uh, and Chris very kindly uh, came back to talk about something he got wrong in adapting systematic strategies to uh, regime change. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is May 18th, 2017, and welcome to episode 16 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is producer James. James, how are you? Not too bad. To be honest, I didn't really expect to be sitting yeah, here me, this week. Me neither. Right behind us is... Uh, well, what used to be a desk, but behind that desk, there is a glass kind of sliding door. And what we've done 
as we put off all these guesses off, you know, from you know, people in the office are guessing when you're going to have your baby girl. Yeah, we're down to the final week now. We are. Yeah. Um, and I made a chart to look at the distribution of, uh, of, of guesses. Of course you did. No, no, but it's, it's important. You are such a nerd. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, come on. No, Grant, it was actually really useful for when Raul uh, put in his, his guess because he picked the one date that nobody else had guessed. Which uh, I was like, yeah, that's that's typical Raul. Uh, but I, I don't know if it's going to work, considering that it might very well be outside the bracket. I mean, not really, right? I mean, it was like it was like five days after when the doctor told you it was due. Yeah. So I, it's conceivable. Yeah. But uh, Grant, how are you? I am very good, fellas. I'm very good. I'm in uh, I'm in London this week, um, and on my way back to the sunny Cayman Islands tomorrow. So you better clear the place up. No mess when I get back. Can't be guaranteed. Yeah, no guarantees. But what we can guarantee is that we're going to start off with our long short segment uh, where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Now, I'm going to go first this week, Aaron. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take it out of your hands and I'm going to go first. Fine, go for it. And, and after, my, um, after my eclectic long of uh, lightning bolts last week. That was a favorite, week, by the way. Tons of yeah, tweets was, about uh, that. That was hilarious. Yeah, I got, I got, I got tons. I uh, got tons of uh, emails from people about that. This week, um, I'm long karma. I'm long karma. Now, you know, I don't want you to think I'm some yoga freak. Uh, I couldn't do it. What happened after you went to Switzerland? Me. Sorry? It's like you went up into the mountains in Switzerland, but I didn't know they had gurus over there. No, no. I, look, I mean, as I said, I, I, I couldn't do a headstand if you paid me, but uh, it was a fantastic article this week um, about a letter written by OPEC, which has asked the U.S. to stop producing so much oil. Uh, and in the report, they blame the U.S. because fracking has increased U.S. oil production so much that it's led to a very lengthy period of low oil prices. And uh, you know, OPEC is claiming that if they want to raise global oil prices, it requires what they call the collective efforts of all uh, oil producers. So uh, you know, we now have this great situation where OPEC is trying to keep uh, global prices between fifty and sixty dollars a barrel. And the U.S. fracking is keeping it below that in the in the mid forties now, and, and looking like it's going to head lower. And so, you know, after all the, the pressure that OPEC has put and all the fun and games they've had manipulating the oil price around, suddenly they're uh, they're not in the driving seat anymore, and um, they're already complaining about somebody else having the power to uh, to be the swing producer and all. So, I just think it, from a karma perspective, when I read that article, I just I couldn't help but have a wry <laughs> smile on my face. But I, I don't know, Grant. I think I think OPEC deserves some kind of credit because I feel it's been it's been well over a year that they've been able to kind of keep this afloat with the job boning. So I, I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of award we can give them. Well, I, yeah, I don't know what that would be. Um, I don't know what it would be, but I, I'm pretty sure it would be uh, it would be gold. So maybe we could just take uh, something out of the uh, out of the Trump Tower, give them something from there. Well, maybe that's a perfect. I have no doubt the odds are that'll be covered in gold. Well, that's a perfect segue into my short for the week because I am short the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. Now, before we jump for joy, this is you know this is a, a small win. You know, it's a battle uh, in the in the larger war. But uh, besides, you know, I am actually long Arizona. You know, besides it being the home of the Grand Canyon and uh, Peter, yes, Peter Brandt. This one, yeah, the state Senate voted to remove all income tax on precious metals at the state level. Um, yes, this, they did. Yeah, the House Bill 2014 allows Arizona taxpayers to basically back out their uh, precious metal gains and losses, and this is when you know with inverted commas, 
that, that they report on the federal returns from their state gross income. Now, obviously, this is, you and I both know this is ridiculous, right? Because to think in terms of gains and losses of precious metals, it, it just doesn't make sense because it's not re- you know, a real gain in terms of real purchasing power. It's just the reciprocal of the dollar's loss of, of purchasing power. Um, so state representative uh, Mark Fitcham, he, who sponsored the bill, he said that what the IRS has figured out at the federal level is to target inflation as a gain, and they call it capital gains. Now, you know, it's bad enough that you have a kleptocracy where these sociopathic leaders have the influence and ability to print currency out of thin air, uh, currency that any regular citizen would have to spend energy, time, and labor to achieve. Uh, and all that's left now is for the governor of Arizona to sign the bill. So, Grant, this is a first for the long short segment. I am long Arizona, and I am long on margin. So this is high conviction. I am long Arizona. Wow, okay, all right. All right, that's uh, that's a big call. But uh, you know you know me well enough. I am not going to take the other side of that one, for on sure. On margin, though. Well, uh, listen, I, you know me and my thoughts on leverage, Aaron. But uh, you know, for a young man like yourself, it's a bold move. I, I, I applaud it in this particular case. Thanks, Grant. So what's your short for the week? Well, my short, uh, and I apologize out there to anybody listening who is uh, Swedish, but my short is Sweden, where uh, they are at the forefront of this, this um, experiment in uh, removing cash from society. Now, Sweden's already the most cashless society on the planet. There was a story this week talking about how uh, even God is now accepting digital payments as a, a whole bunch of Swedish parishes have started taking donations via mobile apps um, and even the, uh, the the cathedral in Uppsala has, uh, has started to take credit cards. Now, when you look at Switzerland, the, the amount of notes and coins in circulation has basically halved uh, in the last uh, seven years. So we're back to where we were in, in 1990 levels, um, which is amazing. And, you know, I, I think having a cash society is a terrible idea. Um, you know, having electronic money uh, just gives governments the ability to do all kinds of things that going into these things you never think they'll do, but just giving them the ability to, particularly with the amount of debt in the world, uh, you know, the, the negative interest rate environment would work very, very well in a cashless society and giving people the, the ability to escape it. So, um, you know, I, I'm short Sweden. I don't like the fact that they are leading the charge because if they are successful, uh, it, won't be, it won't be factored in as to how similar Sweden is to other economies if they are successful, this will morph and spread across the world. And, you know, for me, it's a very, very bad idea. And, you know, the Swedes are buying into this. And I understand that from a convenience point of view. You know, I have two millennial kids and they think not having to carry cash is a great idea. Um, but what do they know? Unfortunately, they're, they are, they're 26 and 20. So, uh, you know, I, I, I am sadly short of Sweden. Beautiful country and lovely people, but I'm short Sweden this week. Yeah, Grant, unfortunately, there are a lot of things about Sweden right now that warrant a short. But actually, I, I thought you were going to mention another uh, Scandinavian uh, country. I thought you were going to mention Denmark, which recently banned cash in its largest prisons, ironically, to fight crime. Um, so anyways, I, I thought you were going to mention Den- Denmark. But yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, a viable short. And, and I guess maybe that's uh, it's kind of flown under the radar with most people. But uh, the Swedish... Um, Central bank has been one of the most aggressive central banks next to the uh, the Swiss National Bank, uh, but you know in terms of their quantitative easing and and, and their interest rate um, policies. Uh, but I feel like it doesn't get a lot of play. Yeah, look, the, the, the Swiss um, central bank for me is a massively underappreciated risk. It's something that I, it's I've been work on recently. Um, it is, and, and you know it, it, when you think of where it's come from, I mean Switzerland is a sort of bastion of financial probity for. For a, for a century, um, 
and and they're buying more U.S. stocks than the average hedge fund. It's it's terrifying what's happening, and it hasn't had really much coverage. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a problem that I can see getting out of hand very very quickly. So, you know, I think I, I hate to do it to Europe. I was in Switzerland last week. It is again a spectacular country, but um, some of these European central banks, somebody needs to slap them. Well, Grant, next up is this week's commentary feature where. We have Paul Westra, who's a senior research analyst at Stiefel covering the restaurant industry. Um, and I found this interview to be particularly interesting because here is an industry analyst making a macro call based off of his bottom-up fundamentals research and insight. Um, and so I was super psyched to get you and Raul to put on your chef's hats and to serve us a different dish from our usual macro entree. Yeah, you know, there's something there's something very special about about getting a, an analyst who really, really knows his sector. And you know, Paul owns restaurants, um, and he understands that sector from from the very ground up. And it's a different sort of conversation than people that, that kind of do this for a living, but they kind of have stumbled into it. Maybe they used to cover the steel sector, and now they've been given the restaurant sector. You know, Paul really knows this. And when we recorded this interview back in November. He made a lot of pretty bold calls, and since then, everything he said has played out. So it's a fascinating conversation, uh, and I'm sure you're all going to really enjoy it. All right, so so when someone like John Burbank calls you and says, you know, you guys need to know what's going on in the restaurant sector, and I've got just a guy for you, it's a pretty simple thing to do to go and line this interview up. So, so we actually went out to uh, Texas to talk to Paul Westra who uh, is a restaurants analyst. And um, the conversation I had with Paul was, you know, it's so great to sit with someone that really knows their sector, bottom to top, uh, and can talk about it. So let's jump into the first clip. Paul Westra, I'm a sell-side restaurant analyst for Stiefel. I've been a sell-side analyst for about 20 years, 20 of the last 22 years. Uh, two years in between, I was a, worked at a technology company for restaurants. And during that, my tenure, actually, I started two New York City restaurants as well. So definitely have uh, been a scorekeeper for quite some time and dabbled in it myself. You know, right now we're having a pretty significant call in the restaurant group. In fact, we've called for a U.S. restaurant recession. Uh, in fact, I think we're in the midst of one um, that will probably last about two years. And what's interesting is that historically, when restaurants fall into recession, uh, the, when restaurants are in for two years, Every time, at least we can tell, that second year was also an overall U.S. economic recession. So we've touched a nerve of late. You know, how does a restaurant analyst in his own little pod, you know, go out and make a big dramatic call about a potentiality for a U.S. economic recession? But we full-heartedly believe it uh, to be true. And um, as far as what we track is we have a very long historical uh, sequence of sales data going back to the late 1990s. And in short, what we've seen in 2016 is very reminiscent to what happened in 2007 and 2000. Um, in fact, if you look at the underlying sales data in the restaurant space and uh, looked at that as a potential leading indicator of a U.S. recession, I'd say the data we have in 2016 is actually more scary than it was in 2000 and 2007. And the specific data is we saw about a 200 basis point same-store sales slowdown across, again, every segment. So a $3 meal out of the fast food or QSR segment, mostly lower income uh, to middle income uh, group, uh, family dining restaurants at $10, like uh, uh, Denny's or IHOP, those are stereotypically elderly customers, and $15 meals at Middle America casual dining restaurants, and fine dining as well. So when you see a dramatic slowdown of that 
breadth and that quantity, again, that's a significant change. Um, and if you think about 40% of Americans not knowing where they're eating dinner every night, if you had to pick one occasion that might be a leading indicator of a slowdown, this would be it. Yes, fine. There's been a lot of talk recently about the divergence between hard and soft data. You know, and the, the soft data for those listening that don't understand the difference is, is sentiment based, and the hard data is, is economic numbers that's backed up by, uh, by firm inputs. And, you know, someone like Paul is on the ground actually talking about people who are going to restaurants and ordering food. You know, when you hear someone like that say that they're seeing data that's scarier than it was in 07, you know, you have to listen to it and actually either believe it or do your own work on it. Yeah, and actually one of the things I look at is full-service restaurants year on year uh, as part of the retail sales numbers. They've now hit negative um, and they've been plummeting. And we've seen a dichotomy, and we'll get more, I guess, into this as we go along in the interview. There's a dichotomy where McDonald's hit all-time highs in revenues because people are going for really cheap food. Really cheap, yeah. But almost everything else seems to be collapsing. And it's not clear because we're also seeing the same going on in in retail stores and it's difficult to separate what's a consumer slowdown and what's part of the let's call it the amazon effect but it looks like there's something big going on with consumer that paul identified last year and if you remember he said this year was likely to be the recession year and you know maybe it's there well this was as you say this was this was november last year paul made this call and you know here we are now five months later and the news feeds are full of stories about uh, Stores shuttering, restaurant recession, you know, all this stuff is starting to happen. And it's funny, look, when, when people eat, that's about as basic as it gets. If it, you, That data tells you an awful lot. Anyway, let's jump into the next clip. So when you invest in restaurant stocks, the number one to think about is from a top-down perspective is they're very monolithic. 80% outperform and underperform together in any given month throughout a 10-year business cycle. Um, and I think 100% outperform or underperform the market during the big, huge phase transitions, again, into a dining out slowdown uh, that triggers a price war that Wall Street never catches, and then, of course, the dining out recovery when they recover and the the, the price war unwinds. And it's the price war that Wall Street doesn't catch and the unwinding of the price war that Wall Street doesn't catch. Every analyst should run a restaurant or run a car company, whatever their sector is, having that experience of what the business looks like and what and the signs you can tell when you're actually running the business is just so crucial and what i love is and you mentioned it before is having somebody who knows their stuff yeah um you know it's so valuable when you're drilling down to a sector to know somebody who actually knows what goes on the ground knows the historical references and what's currently happening more um well ahead of Wall Street. I think it's vital and it's really great stuff he does. Well, look, everything's cyclical. We, you, you and I talk about this a lot, but but nothing's more cyclical than the restaurant business. I mean, we see it boom bust time and time and time again. And cities that I've lived in all around the world, you kind of notice it a bit later than guys like Paul do. He's looking at the data, looking at the numbers on the ground up. When you when you just go to restaurants, you suddenly you notice that, hey, that restaurant closed. I don't remember, you know, that's been going for ages. It's been around for 25 years and the restaurant closed. And then you suddenly start seeing this throughout the town. But by then, of course, it's too late. You know, you've missed it. Yeah, and another trend you've noticed is everywhere you go, there's another kind of millennial-run restaurant with blokes with beards running it. <laughs> I mean, they're bloody everywhere. Well, it's you and I sitting here, two blokes with beards. We should probably require <laughs> about that. They're not that big beards. That's true. That's true. And certainly not so neatly, neatly trimmed as those guys. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll go back to Paul. 
so when the question comes, you know, why does this price war get launched, it's really the underlying fatal flaw of the restaurant business, uh, which is basically going back to Porter's Five Forces. It's the high exit cost of the industry compounded by the low incremental cost of production. So there's about 700,000 restaurants in America, give or take, and I would guess that maybe 100,000 of those restaurants are literally being run day-to-day, month, week-to-week, month-to-month, just to make payroll. So they're basically bankrupt. Um, and the problem is, is these restaurants don't close. So the restaurant industry doesn't shoot their debt. And here's the typical reason why, is that if you and I were to you know, invest a million dollars in a restaurant, and because everyone wants to do that, as you know, um, and we find ourselves two or three years into this venture, and we're not making any money, and we want to get out, the problem is we can't leave. Because you and I, in most cases in this scenario, have probably signed a 10- or 15-year lease with our personal guarantee. So not only are a million dollars is vaporized because used pots and pans are sold for a nickel or a dime on eBay, um, more importantly, we're on the hook to pay that landlord. So we want to leave. We might have to leave, give that landlord a half a million dollar check, which we won't do. So if we're operating this restaurant and we have someone in the kitchen and someone in the uh, dining room waiting tables, you know, the incremental cost for us to produce a meal is maybe 30 cents. So when sales decline, game theory would say you just have to cut your prices um, to get people in the door just to, again, break even. Um, and that triggers, there's 50 or 100,000 of those restaurants that, you know, that are going to do that, and then the chains obviously have to jump on as well. So that's what is the underlying cause of this price war when sales come down. And, of course, again, Wall Street never catches it. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the key component there. I, you know, I didn't think of this. When I was sitting there talking to Paul, and, and he was running me through this. And, of course, when you hear someone with that level of knowledge talk about it, it's like, well, yeah, of course. But when you think about it in real terms from an investment point of view and you look at, okay, what does it mean if there's a restaurant price war? Okay, fine. You, all you think about really is, okay, some restaurants are going to be struggling. The chain restaurants, maybe they'll see their income drop. Maybe things like McDonald's will go up. We think of it in such big level terms. When you get down to it, this is this is you know, this zombification of another, yet another sector is frightening. Yeah, well, one thing I just did was looking at the 350 million people in America divided by the 700,000 restaurants, you've basically got 500 potential customers per restaurant. <laughs> and basically, if, you, if, if every restaurant is 50 covers, you know, people have to go and eat at those restaurants a lot yeah. for them to make money. And this is always the problem in the restaurant business is it's a really hard business because you never get enough customers. And, and then the problem is the fixed cost element that he talked about becomes actually quite difficult and to slow close down is is really complicated because it's basically worth nothing on close down yeah you, know, you, you look at this when you and i travel around we tend to go to major cities and you go to new york you go to london and the restaurants are packed you know it's tough to get a reservation everything's full everything's heaving and there's you know people lining up out the doors but when you kind of drive outside the major cities you do see a lot of these places with you know a couple of people and i mean we see here in cayman right? you go into a restaurant here in cayman and oftentimes you're the only person in there and i, I always sit and think to myself how do these places survive? How do you do that? It's, it's it must be a constant source of stress. Yeah, it's not an easy business. Well, you and I are not going to be up in a restaurant anytime soon. If we, if either of us I'd has that to. idea, it's the great no, vanity no, no, project. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> buy, buy a soccer Go club, on, please. Buy a soccer club. Don't like soccer. <laughs> so, with respect to the U.S. restaurant recession, we actually think this one could be the worst ever. Not to pile on the bearish call, uh, but it's because we don't see the we see peak returns here in 2016 being way higher than the peak re- earnings we saw in 2000 and 2007. And the reason why is 
we've already c- collected the windfall profits from the commodity collapse. So in short, when I talked about the average historical decline in restaurant earnings during a typical restaurant recession is about 15%, that happened despite the fact that historically inflation for food collapses. So the average inflation rate going into the last three recessions for food was 5%. And two years later, the year after the recession, it was negative 2 So we saw the 700 basis point inflation rate drop that protected those earnings from falling further. Conversely, we saw a halving of the inflation rate for labor. So historically, labor inflation rates was 5% heading into the last three recessions, and the year after, two years later, they were only 25 So unfortunately, this time around, we've already basically got the commodity cost, um, the food cost inflation windfall profits, because during a U.S. slowdown or recession, corn historically falls from $8 a bushel to $3, oil falls from $100 a barrel to 50 and that, again, cushions the fall. This time around, corn's already at a 50-year low at $3 a bushel, and we've already got oil collapsing to $50, so the peak earnings number for 16 is much higher than it was in the 00 and 07. We'll either have a further declapse, or looking at it from the same perspective, we won't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So in 2018-19, again, we don't see the significant pricing power because we've already food, food deflation's already here at a 50-year low, and more importantly, rather than seeing that labor deflate as much as we've done historically because of minimum wage pressures, both at the state level and even pending federal level, regardless, even with Trump being president, we're going to have some federal minimum wage, or we should most likely count on it. So the falling or slowing of labor rate inflation in 1819 doesn't look as robust as it may have been for restaurants and you know, recovery of 07 and recovery of all recessions. That's pretty grim. That's really grim, yeah. I mean, whenever I hear someone comparing the state of their industry or their market, whatever, is to times like 07, you know, it's often a disingenuous connection to make because there were things were so crazy then um, that you start talking about, everyone says, oh, you know, the market now is not overvalued when you compare it to 2000. Well, yeah, because no other market in history was expensive compared to that. So people use the wrong comparison. But when Paul starts talking about how this looks worse than the worst it got going into the last recession, that's something that, that pricks my ears up. And you know, it's interesting when he says, you know, not, not to jump on with a bearish call. You know, people don't like hearing bearish calls. And, you know, you and I get a lot of flack about this because we talk about the bearish side all the time. And part of that becomes because it's so easy to find the bullish side. Everybody wants to talk about the bullish side, but that's out there. Okay, so, the, so that's fine. If you want to hear the bullish case, pick up the Wall Street Journal, listen to CNBC, you know, watch any of these shows, and you'll hear it. But when you get guys like Paul that really do know their space, that really you know, have owned restaurants and understand the sector, saying things like this, as you said, it's grim, and it really does make you start to think. As you can imagine, everyone comes up to me and says, Paul, 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 I got this great restaurant idea, blah, 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 and that's where I usually put up my hand and say, okay, stop talking. Does your widget factory do the following three things? Because if it doesn't, you'll never make money as a public restaurant company. Okay, it, that concept has to do more dinner than lunch, more dine-in business than takeout, and it has to serve more women than men. That's the answer. Because if you don't do more dinner than lunch, more dine-in than takeout, and more women than men, you'll never earn your cost of capital. And it's really some quad- four-quadrant work we do and some analysis we do. But basically, you want to think about the restaurant business as serving daytime meals and evening meals and either people taking it away or eating at the restaurant. So those are those four primary occasions that you have to make money. And, it, and the only one you make money or economic value added in is in that dine-out dinner business. 
And since women make 75% of the dine-out dinner decisions for American families, you better be female friendly. So let's talk about, almost by deduction, why the other three are really bad businesses. Uh, so the two lunch businesses, whether you eat there or take it out, are really more difficult than normal for a couple reasons. One, it's the lowest barrier to entry. So $25,000 um, gets you a food truck and you can be in the business, and it's not very complicated to be in the sandwich business as opposed to a fancy fine dining restaurant. Also, most importantly, is I joke that my fellow restaurateurs would be arrested if they were in any other business because they basically illegally dump lunch meals on the marketplace in incremental cost. So if you're a full-service restaurateur and you have a meal at $20 for, at 6 p.m., most restaurants will sell that meal as the lunch special for $10. Okay, that's like Intel dumping computer chips on the Asian market. Okay, it's called economic dumping, and it's semi-illegal. So I only semi-joke it's true. So it's really bad, and that puts an extra pricing top um, on the lunch occasion. Uh, and then when you segue into the take-home dinner business, it's also a very difficult business because basically brands don't matter as much when you're in the safety of your own home. So whether that delivery person shows up with a cardboard box that says Domino's or Papa John's or Pizza Hut, again, you're taking that box into your kitchen to eat it. It's not like you're walking around town with a self-esteem cup of Starbucks. So 75% of transactions in delivery, home delivery at dinner have historically been done on coupon. Uh, so 75% of transactions in pizza have been done on coupon. Now that's changing a lot with mobile ordering, but basically you can understand the, the underlying flaws of each of those three occasions. So really by deduction, it's the dine-out dinner business um, that makes the money in, in the industry. So if you're starting a restaurant, make sure you do dinner, dine-in, and women. Damn. I had a football-themed <laughs> lunch and takeout diner planned. That was my idea. Yeah, I think we can put a line through that one. <laughs> I, you know, I, look, I had never had any interest in owning a restaurant or a bar, but I remember when I sat there listening to Paul, I'm just thinking to myself, this is so hard. It's so hard to do unless you hit the spot and you become the place right, that everybody really wants to go to. And I remember from my time in Tokyo, these places would come. They'd have a year, 18 months when everybody was in there and you couldn't get reservation. Then the next place would open down the street and that's it. It's done. And you know, I remember really well from the beach town in Spain, in Javier where I lived, is – Everybody wants to be a restaurateur, but nobody had a strategic plan or understood what they were doing. So basically, they thought, a great idea, they, they'd had a job in England, they decided to spend their money on building a restaurant spend, it was going to make them rich. They all completely didn't understand anything about the market, who their customer was, what the customer actually wanted. So they kind of served substandard food and went out of business a year later. And that just went on and on and on. And, you know, this is the problem. As Paul suggests here, is you really, really have to know what it is you're trying to sell people, is it what they want? Well, yeah, everybody opens the restaurant they think they'd like to eat at, right? That's I, the big mistake. Yeah. Well, I know what you eat, and I'd never eat at your restaurant. <laughs> it's like Cheerios and burgers. Hey, listen, don't knock, don't knock Cheerio Burger. It's just going to be that's going to be the franchise of the next millennium, my friend. <laughs> so I think Paul's whole interview was a fascinating understanding for people how to think about deep diving into a sector how much knowledge you really need to know. Because people have so many people have a superficial knowledge of things. And the people who make the real money really understand it. It gives you a real competitive edge in your investing if you've actually been part of that industry as well. So, you know, if you'd like to invest in software, but you've never actually been involved in the software industry, what the hell do you know versus somebody right. who really knows their stuff? Well, yeah, the, the classic case at the moment that's on everybody's lips is Tesla, right? Here's a, here's a, a story that's really caught Can the I drive a car? Right, no, but it's really cool. Got imagination, a battery, right? Yeah, that's okay. You got your little electric car there. 
But it's just caught people's imagination. And so everybody owns Tesla. How many of those guys do you think really understand the auto industry? You know, because when you talk to hardcore auto analyst guys, the split is really stark. I mean, there are people that think the company's a zero. There are people that think the company's the next great thing. But they've all got a very, very strong opinion, not just, wow, Tesla's a cool, everyone's got an electric car, I'm going to buy the stock. You know, if you want to do this properly, you really have to dig in and understand the sector, not just the company, the, the broader sector. And I think one of the things we talk about in Real Vision a lot is about doing your own homework. Yeah. And that's the key thing, because you can follow, follow market narratives, but they're not your ideas. You don't actually know what's going on. You're listening to some bloke on Twitter telling you what he thinks is going yep. on. That's not an investment thesis. An investment thesis is actually doing homework. And if you watch films like The Big Short, you realise what separates the true winners in this industry, whether it was Julian Robertson over the 80s and 90s and early, or not even the early 2000s, but, but people like him or people like, you know, the guys in The Big Short, all of these guys completely understood the industries yeah. they invested in or the specific opportunity that they were trying to take advantage of. Yeah, and they didn't go into it until they were absolutely certain that they minimised the downside, they understood the risk-reward, and they felt comfortable putting big trades on. Now, a lot of those work out, and some of them don't, and they're painful when they don't, but at least, you know, if they don't work out, but you did your homework, at least that way you can look yourself in the face and say, look, I, did, I didn't skip, I didn't just do this the lazy way, I did it properly. Exactly. So, Grant, I don't think we can get through this podcast without me asking you about the Cheerio Burger Shack. Can you, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Is this a new thing or is this a vanity purchase you've been thinking about for, for a long time? Uh, give us some insight into the Cheerio Burger Shack. You know, Cheerios are a much maligned source of uh, nutrition, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, they've got all the great food groups. They've got honey and nuts uh, and, of course, Cheerios. So no, I wouldn't listen to Ralph. I mean, he likes his fancy food. I'm a, I'm a simple man. And uh, yeah, the the great American Cheerio is, I think, one of the one of the most important food groups to make sure you uh, you eat. So just ignore him and um, try Honey Nut Cheerios. Uh, brackets, other cereals are available. Now, before we jump into the next segment, I want to take the opportunity to do something we really haven't done over the past fifteen episodes of this podcast. Now, during the last segment, Raoul snuck into the recording area, which means that uh, we have a rare occurrence where Grant and Raoul are on the same line. So. Raul, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Good to be here. I was here anyway. I just want to, I just want to point that out. I am here anyway. I'm here, I'm here all week. Now, I'm going to use this time to pick your brains about Real Vision TV and ask you guys some questions that our subscribers have probably been itching to ask you guys for some time. So first up, can you tell us the backstory for Real Vision TV and how it all got started? Essentially, Grant and myself got together several years ago over a glass of wine in Spain and realized that after 2008, so many people came to us and said, why didn't we know what was going to happen? And that sat uncomfortably with both of us. We didn't actually know each other then. Um, yep. Grant happened to be in Spain at the time. So we're having dinner, chatting about things. And we realized that the banks and the media had let people down back in 2008. And this was, back, this was now about 2011, 2012, yeah. we were yeah. chatting. And it still sat uncomfortably with me. And we both realized that there was an opportunity to create a new media business where there's some integrity in what we do, no sponsorship, no bias, no sound bites, but in-depth interviews with the smartest people in the world. And we knew people would pay a subscription for that, a reasonable rate, because they could educate themselves about how the world really works and not listen to kind of faux professionals and their sound bites, but really understand what makes great investors, how to find great investment ideas. And I think media in general had let people down so far in this 
that it was a fantastic opportunity to do something different. Well, Raul, you've opened up Pandora's box here because now that I have both of you here, and it's a question that I, I've had for a long time and, and I want to get, get from both of you. Uh, anytime you, you talk, start talking about the origin story of Real Vision, um, I was wondering, can you share any, any some, you know, er, interesting early stories from when you guys first, first started? <laughs> well, <laughs> interesting, no, painful. I yes. mean, what was interesting is, is we honestly didn't know what we were doing. And we had an idea and we actually met up in Hong Kong. We both, Grant was in Singapore at the time, and myself and Remy, another one of the co-founders, um, were in Spain. And we decided to meet in Hong Kong to hash out an idea. And after we had, we spent uh, two days on a whiteboard, we came up with this great idea. So we went to see a producer at CNN That's right. and said, hey, listen, this is our idea. We're going to go and film these interviews, blah, blah, blah. And she looked at it and said, you guys have no idea what you're doing. Do you understand how much it costs to film an interview? Well, like, well how much is that? And they're like, well, it's about 15 to 20 grand. Yeah, for a half hour, for a half hour segment. We're like, ah. Oh. Okay, that's the end of our business back plan. Back to the drawing board. So we flew back to Spain, miserable. And then some, I don't know who it was, somewhere, somehow, somebody said, hold on, maybe we can do this cheaper. So is CNN telling you it's not possible a contrarian indicator? Well, yeah. exactly, because that's exactly the point, is if you want to be, if you want to disrupt an industry, you have to do everything differently. And what we realized is we could make the highest quality financial television available. I mean, nothing is as high quality as Real Vision for a fraction of the cost. We had this great idea of, of starting something that was one part Ted, one part The Economist, and throw in a little bit of South Park for some irreverence along the way. Uh, you know, it all seemed a great idea to us at the time. And just the, the journey we've been on in terms of evolving that content, both in, in style um, and direction, has just been amazing. And I think one of the things that shocked people is all the functionality of, of you know, web apps and, and download transcripts and all sorts of great things, the ability to watch now, take notes, converse with other people in the community. And then we only charge people $364. I mean, I think one of the things we had from day one was people writing, this is crazily underpriced. I mean, yeah. I, mean I think as, uh, as um, one of our contributors once said, who's a, a well-known hedge fund manager in his own right, he said, listen, you guys are giving access to people that normally you'd need $100 million invested in their fund to be able to sit down with Kyle Bass for an hour and hear how he thinks. And I think, you know, I'm incredibly proud of what we managed to do and the price that we managed to offer it. I mean, talk to us a bit about the content we've got coming up, Grant. Uh, I mean, we've improved the quality of the production from, uh, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, day after day, we've, we've got better, I think, at, at producing content. The informational aspect of it is just getting stronger as we get better at what we do and, and people uh, give us new and exciting people to talk to. But we're also broadening the content into documentary-style uh, pieces that we hope will really help people flesh out the world we live in. Um, we're also looking at adding panel debates. We're also looking at bringing a lot more really short, sharp, actionable trade ideas so that people can look at ways of actually making money out of the content, not just becoming better investors, but specific action points that will help people put trades on and, and, and make a profit. Yeah, and we're also doing a lot of work on news flow analysis and not by just necessarily commenting on what's just happened in the news because you can get that on CNBC and all that stuff. Really, it's about anticipating the major turning points and events across all asset classes to, again, help guide people. You know, where is the narrative going to come from, not to follow the existing narrative? So that's really exciting. We're rolling out a whole series of programs on that. Um, so it's incredible how much of a change Real Vision has become 
and where it's going is incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's, it is really exciting. And it's not only about the finance, but also changing how they view the world. Yeah, I never forget one of the ones we did about that was Mark Hart, who most people don't know, but viewers of Real Vision have gotten to know quite well. Mark is a very low-key, incredibly smart hedge fund manager who was um, Carl Bass's kind of partner in the subprime trade. Anyway, Mark said, listen, Raoul, um, I want you to come meet somebody and we'll sit down and have an interview. And that was with Tim Ferriss, the very famous podcaster. And Tim came on Real Vision with Mark Hart and talked about all the aspects of life outside of trading and investing that actually help you become a better investor, to have a higher quality of life and to succeed in many things. And I think those kind of nuances are super important. I know you know you and I, Aaron, have been talking about a podcast about the behavioral aspects of investing and how to think about um, your mindset. All of these things are so important. And that's the kind of approach you want to take, the whole holistic approach, give people the broadest possible vision. Yeah, no, Raul, you're so right about having the holistic view and, 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 and really being exposed to those divergent uh, opinions and, and frameworks. But Raul, let's, let's get right to why you came into the studio in the first place. Uh, and I think it's because you have an important announcement for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of changes coming up and Real Vision's growing fast. And we're trying to build the world's best financial media platform. Um, we have written publications, we have the podcast, and we have Real Vision TV. Now, Real Vision TV has been underpriced from day one at $364. And we're going to have to raise prices. And the price will be going up to $597 a year, which is still incredibly cheap for what you get. But here's an opportunity for everybody listening to the podcast. If you've not had a chance to check out Real Vision TV, then pop along to the website, realvision.com, take a free trial, a seven-day free trial, have a look around, see what you think. And if you get in before June 7th, you'll get access to our entire library of, I think it's over 650 videos already and new videos almost every single day. All the great trade ideas where some of the world's best investors show you actionable ideas of where to make money. You'll get all the documentaries, you get all the incredible programming, and you can lock in that one-year low rate of $364. I think it's an absolute bargain and a real opportunity. And at anything, just have a look at the free trial because it's worth it for that alone. Another really important thing to me are students. And I think students really need to be able to get access to this kind of information. And I've been a big proponent of making sure that there's a huge discount for students. The student price is not going up. So if you are a student, it's $120 a year, or you can pay monthly because I know budgets are tight. You know, students around the world have come flooding to Real Vision, and even so much so that we're, you know, part of the curricula, or at least helping within the curricula at uh, Judge Business School at Cambridge University for their Master of Finance program. So if you are a student, it really is worth checking out. And again, you can take a free trial to have a look. Yeah, it sounds like an ab- just amazing deal. Um, but before we, we get, move on, I can't let you guys go without telling me another story. And I heard Milton purchased on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> how, yes. d- how dare you? Yes, Milton. Milton uh, so the, the idea behind Milton was... Uh, well, explain who Milton is. Most people don't even know him. That's a very good point. Milton is our, our, uh, our ventriloquist dummy. Uh, he's, the, he's the chairman. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, we'll, we'll we'll argue that later. But yeah, Milton Milton was our subtle way of taking a dig at what we saw as the talking heads on on financial TV, um, and you know the, the puppets that basically spout a whole lot of nonsense that they're pre-programmed to do. And we, you know, we thought this was all very clever and amusing, and what we've 
subsequently discovered is 94.7% of people are terrified of ventriloquist dummies. The reaction to Milton is normally just abject fear. But it gave a sense of the rebellion of what Real Vision stood for. It stood for trying to shake up the status quo. And Milton worked, and the name Milton came from um, Milton Friedman. And it wasn't kind of necessarily a worshipping of Milton Friedman. It was the fact that economists have been kind of deified and we don't think that's probably a right thing. That's where the the horror puppet of Milton came from. And yes, we did buy Milton on eBay. Okay, well, thanks, guys. But before we move on to our next segment, guys, remember, go on to realvision.com, have a look, poke around, uh, take advantage of the free trial, and see what you think. Okay, so now let's move on to our Things I Got Wrong segment, where we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong, and ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derive from that experience. And hopefully, you guys won't make the same mistakes. And this week, I had the great pleasure to speak with Chris Cole again, who is the managing partner of Artemis Capital Management. We got tons of positive feedback from a volatility episode, so I was really happy to get Chris back on. And we spoke about a mistake he made in adjusting his systematic strategies to regime changes. Listen in. So, Chris, can you tell us about a time you got something wrong and, and uh, yeah, just tell us a story behind that? Yeah, I think one of the best lessons I learned early is that if you can analyze your mistakes uh, and learn from your mistakes, at times that can lead into uh, some of the best ideas that you'll ever have. And very early in my career, I approached volatility trading a lot like how most of the world looks at it today. Uh, I think in the period of, of about 2005 to 2006, I, I looked at things and said, well, I'm going to bet on mean reversion because volatility mean reverts. And this strategy was very successful in that particular regime. But there was a point in time where volatility extended above where I anticipated it would mean revert. And it resulted in a much sharper loss than I had initially imagined. And I realized at that point that I knew nothing about risk control. And I knew nothing about volatility itself. And I saw that because everyone crowded into an expectation of mean reversion, that actually the best trade that would pay off less frequently, but more powerfully, would be the anticipation of when volatility would not mean revert, when it, if it, where it would break through. And I realized that I could put on uh, relatively inexpensive, inexpensive uh, positions that would pay off in this event. And this was very profound for me. Because I think coming off of a period where I experienced what was one of the largest drawdowns in a proprietary trading account, I, it was from analyzing that drawdown that I saw the real opportunity, that the real opportunity in many ways was doing something that was completely opposite what, what the initial instincts were. And I began working with different systematic strategies that looked to, to play on that opposite impulse. And it was from that that uh, 
for that very reason, analyzing mistake, learning from that mistake that I was able to make money uh, in 2008 when volatility burst above 30 and kept going all the way above 80. And that was the insight that allowed the existence of Artemis. I think if it had not been from the analysis of a initial mistake, uh, there would be no Artemis today. And so that's that's probably been that's probably been the core. I think one of the most interesting kind of reversals or conceptual ideas that has come from a mistake of mine early in my career. Chris, you bring up working against your own impulses and even going so far as to you know create a systematic strategy that that does that for you. Um, so, one, can you talk a little bit more about your experience with that now and and how you still you know how you still check it? I mean, is it something that is more or less automatic, like you're immediately aware or self aware about that impulse? And and the second part is, is there any kind of balance between the systematic strategy and then your own kind of you know discretionary input, or is it just one hundred percent on on the systematic strategy? I think you know the power of the power of a systematic strategy is that it allows you to do do things in a uh, that run against it your impulse. So you're. You, you'll have a tremendous amount – you'll do a tremendous amount of research in the beginning of a systematic strategy in order to uh, be able to enact that when your impulses are saying something that is different. Uh, so I think particularly if you're, if you're doing something that runs against your basic human impulses, having, having that, that dedicated type of uh, – uh, uh, dedicated uh, type of execution – is is a powerful way to go. Now that being said, that being said, systematic doesn't mean lack of human input. What systematic means is that I'm going to put all my energies into developing the strategy from the get-go and to be completely paranoid that the inputs that I used to set up that strategy are still being relevant. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that systematic means that you just set something up and forget about it or that it's just machines running in the background. I think, I think it's anything but. I think a, a systematic strategy means that you're going to front load the work and then you're going to be paranoid about regime change where the dynamics that led to that, that systematic strategy to be relevant may be shifting. Um, so, But that's the downfall of systematic trading. But one of the most powerful things is that if you, if you have if you're trying to do something that runs counter to human impulses, uh, setting it up within a systematic framework is is particularly important. And this is really important for strategies that that maybe pay out one or two times out of ten. You know, you can have a strategy that that makes a lot of money only twenty percent of the time. So it'll lose money, lose money, lose money, lose money, and then that you know one out of ten times you make. Everything you you lost and more, much more back. Those types of strategies are very, very difficult to execute in a discretionary format. Um, you can train yourself to. Uh, I, I found that applying a systematic approach to that type of trading was an effective tool for me. Chris, one thing that I've tried to deal with myself and where I thought of a lot about myself is how I can use my own impulse as a, as a means of gauging where the 
um, the change in regime might be, right? Because you said one of the, the downfalls of, of a systematic strategy is that it may not tell you necessarily where the change in regime may be. So do you ever tap into your own impulses as perhaps a countermeasure to what your uh, the systematic strategy is telling you? Or uh, you know, what tells you when it's time to maybe uh, to, to step take a step back, maybe do some more research and figure out what new regime we're in? So I, you know, it's an interesting point because that leads probably to one of the one of the other major trading errors I made in my career, which was in 2010. Which I mean, if you can imagine running certain systematic strategies and having an incredible record of success in a proprietary account between 2007 and 2009, and then in 2010, having to look at those strategies and throw out all the assumptions because of a regime shift that happened in the middle of that year. And I think I was too slow to make that, to make that realization. You become, particularly if they've been successful, you become emotionally connected to your systematic strategies. <laughs> and that's Ironic. a huge mistake. Yeah, it's a huge mistake. You tend to think that they're infallible or, or you know, even have some sort of a magic to them. And that is particularly very, very dangerous. So I, I, think, I think I made that adjustment. I, I realized that, and that's based in about the middle of 2010 to the late 2010 to say what, what worked in the past is, is now changing. And I need to adapt these systematic models because the core inputs are, are not what they used to be. Um, and I think that is that's that's why there's this view that systematic trading is like you just set it up and let it roll. Um, it, particularly if you end up going through a drawdown, the question is why are you going through that drawdown? And is are the inputs and the dynamics and the alpha and the edge from that model has that shifted, um, or is there some sort of some sort of element that has changed? In the way that you're you're measuring this risk or measuring this edge that needs to be that needs to be adjusted, and I I didn't make that adjustment quick enough in my propri proprietary trading in 2010. Um, I think I I made the adjustment, but I, I feel like the success of those models between 2007 and early 2010 uh, did not force me to make the adjustment um, as fast as I could have. So this is where I imagine like, you know, robust risk management in your, in your systematic uh, trading strategy can really help you kind of avoid the drawdowns of, of a, when you do experience a shift in regime. But, but Chris, I could go on for much longer asking you questions, but um, we've come to the end. I, can you just tell us where our listeners can find your work or, or even get in touch with you? Sure. I think the, the best way is to visit our website, which is um, www. Uh, artemiscm, A-R-T-E-M-I-S-C-M.com. And uh, my latest research piece is uh, volatility, volatility in the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma. You could probably just even Google that. Um, but we also have some of our market view pieces up there. Um, and there's a, a bunch of information on that website. Great. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend the listeners check that out because, uh, Chris, that piece, the Allegory of the Cave, uh, sorry, Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma piece has been passed around numerous times around our office. And you know, I know many of us are still kind of trying to chew through it because it's, it's, it's really profound uh, work and, and uh, our listeners should definitely check it out. But thanks for taking the time to speak with us today.
I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, Grant, I really could have gone on for another hour uh, with Chris about systematic strategies, back testing, out of sample testing. Um, and I think even if you're not into systematic strategies, I, I think the, th- the, the thinking applies to any kind of strategy you're running. Um, the idea that you need to constantly evaluate the quality and predictive ability of your inputs, um, assessing the regime you're in, um, and, and the constant paranoia that the inputs are not giving you what you need. I think these are things that every investor should be at least asking themselves at some point in their investing process. No, if, you, if, you have, if you have money invested, if you have a position on it and you're not checking and rechecking that every day, uh, you're doing a disservice either to yourself or your investors. It's, it's that simple. Um, and it takes a lot to, to, to see something and have the courage to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I was wrong. Because uh, you know, as human beings, we don't like to admit to anyone else, even ourselves, that we're wrong. It, it's, it's a tough thing to do, but it's such an important discipline. If, if, you, can, if you can make those calls dispassionately, um, take your emotions out of it and, and, and have the humility to be wrong uh, and accept it and move on. It, it's one of the best lessons you could ever learn. Yeah, and I really love how Chris deconstructed the idea that, uh, or the misconception that people have of systematic strategies where it's just you set it and you let it run. Um, you know, the, uh, the point that a systematic strategy is basically where you front load all the work and then you let the strategy run, I think is really important. And it, you know, hopefully it dis- demystifies some of the... Um, uh, let's call it the air of mystery around systematic strategies. Well, Grant, that's the end of, uh, brings us to the end of another episode, episode 16. Uh, before we get to the end, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be construed as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops and trade responsibly. Yes, indeed. Uh, what he said. Now, next week, uh, we will be back with the usual long short segment uh, and our things I got wrong piece. And next week's feature segment is one that I've been waiting to do for a long time now. Uh, Given Bitcoin's crazy price action and the recent WannaCry global ransomware attack, uh, in which hackers demanded Bitcoin as ransom payment, it's about time we dove into the topic. So next week, we're going to get you caught up on what you need to know about this insurgent cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. And if you've got an interesting question about either this week's show or for that matter, anything else, we would love to hear it. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps us in the rankings. Yeah, if you, if you leave us a review, uh, puppies everywhere are really happy. So just do that for us. That'd be great. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, uh, and podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that very easily uh, uh, at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here same time next week. listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com